Well, good evening, church family. Good to see you tonight. Thank you for making it a point to uh, come out to this uh, evening service and this meat and potatoes uh, ongoing series of deeper dives into the Word of God and various Bible topics. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit tonight. Why? Because I've got this button that I can't fix, and then I'll talk to you in just a second. It's driving me crazy. Okay, good. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit tonight. Why? Because as Jesus says in one of the texts that we're going to look at later this evening, he does not speak of himself. And because of that, and because there is less said about him or written about him in the Bible than there is the work of the Father or the deeds of the Son, uh, because there is less said about him, there is more speculation about him, and there is therefore much more false teaching that is taught about him. So though this is not going to be when you walk out of here this evening, uh, you will have it's not going to be where you will have learned everything there is to know about the Holy Spirit. But my hope is at least when you walk out, you will say, I at least have a pretty general overview of what I am supposed to know based on what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. You may still have questions. There may still be things that you wonder. You may have what ifs or what have you. By all means, shoot your questions my way. I probably don't have the answers either, but we will at least together look at what the Bible does say and hopefully settle some misconceptions that uh, often pop up about it. So, the sermon is to answer a question. How does the Holy Spirit work today? But we're not just going to answer that question. That'll be basically the last thing that we do with our time together this evening. You have to build up to that. You have to lay a foundation. You have to uh, dot your T's and cross your I's. So, we're going to do that by, first of all, that was a joke. Let's first of all answer some preliminary considerations. We have to kind of lay a foundation. We have to understand some things about the Holy Spirit before we understand the important things about the Holy Spirit. And then after the preliminary considerations, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit fits into the uh, spectrum of the Godhead. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, I can, I can see, thanks to the Bible telling me a lot about Him, I can see how God operates, and I can see what the Son does, but the role of the Holy Spirit, a little more... Um, vague. So we're going to see how he fits in through scripture in the Godhead. And then we're going to notice some common misconceptions because as you no doubt know, if you've talked to enough people about him, your friends at the barbershop or at your workplace or what have you, people have their various opinions, their ideas, their thoughts about the Holy Spirit, and some of them are out there. So we're going to look at what they say versus what the Bible says and try to write some uh, wrong misconceptions. And then finally, then we'll end by answering the question, how does he work today? We'll look at some matters of the present. We've got to begin with some common misconceptions. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, no, we don't. We need to begin with some preliminary considerations. We need to begin by laying a foundation. We need to understand who it is that we're talking about and who it is we are not talking about, what we're discussing and what we are not discussing. So first of all, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a being. In other words, he he, we'll get to that one too, he is not just a thing that is done, or he is not the um, uh, amount of effort that is put into something by God, but rather he is God. He is not an it, that's a point we'll get to, but he is a being, he is a person, not a human being, not a human person, but a person. He has a personality, he has a memory, he has thoughts and feelings, he has words which he speaks, he has actions which he undertakes. He is not a for force, he is a being which sometimes forces, which do, does uh, various things. So to understand that, let's look at it this way. He is not a, uh, a sword, 
that is wielded by God, but rather he is the wielder of the sword. Your Bible is called in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit. Not the sword which is the Spirit, but the sword of the Spirit. When you properly wield this weapon, this spiritual weapon of spiritual warfare, you are fighting on behalf of the Spirit, using what he inspired you to use. So it's not the sword, it is the, the wielder of the sword. And he, 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 he is the wielder of the sword. He is not a power of God, but a doer of God's power. Whatever He does, it is God doing something. And He is not a miracle, but He is a miracle maker. And so when a miracle is done in the Bible, especially when the Holy Spirit is involved by name, then you can credit the Holy Spirit as the doer of the miracle, not the miracle itself. That may all sound like understandable things that we all know, but you'd be surprised how many of those just one, two, three points are up for debate and contention in our religious world. So let's look at it this way. He is not a force, but a being. Which means, because he is, and how you can prove he is, being a, a being, not a force, things can be done to him. You can't do something to a thing which is done. You do something to someone who does a thing. You can do something to the Holy Spirit. And the very fact that you can do something to the Holy Spirit tells you that he is a being to which things can be done. For example, you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Mark 3.29 In so doing, Jesus talks about what you're doing against him and what the consequences are, which is a whole different subject. I don't want to spend more than 30 seconds getting into it, but you pretty much can't mention blasphemy of the Holy Spirit without saying something about it because somebody's going to walk away with questions about that. It's not the point, but I'm going to give it to you in just a second. But I just want you to see, before I have a a digression onto that subject, I want you to see that if you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then he's not just this thing, but he is one that receives things done to him. In this case, a negative thing. Now, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? People get freaked out about this because as Jesus talks about it, he basically says, if you do this thing, you cannot be forgiven. And to that, people get all kinds of twisted and all kinds of worried. And they say, I know if I do this sin or if I do that sin, then I can be forgiven. But I hope I never accidentally commit this sin over here. If I accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then I can never be forgiven. You cannot accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The whole point of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a deliberate action coming from a hard heart. The point, the reason why Jesus says if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you can't be forgiven, is not because you've crossed a line that you can't ever go back from. It's you've crossed a line you don't want to go back from. Let me put it this way. Any sin you could ever commit is a sin, a sin enough to damn your soul forevermore. I don't care what it is, how small you may think it is. One little bitty lie is enough to damn your soul. Why? Because if you don't repent of it, you're going to go to hell. If you don't apologize for your sin and make things right with God or with the one that you've sinned against, you will be condemned. It doesn't matter what the sin is. And it doesn't matter how humongous the sin is. If you repent of it, you can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in the context of Jesus working miracles. By the way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that's, we'll get there. Jesus working miracles, these hard-hearted Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees seeing those miracles and saying, well, he's not really God doing that. He's casting out a demon, demon not by the power of God, but by the prince of the demons, Beelzebub. In other words, they saw Jesus do a miracle which would be indisputably a proof that he is God. And instead of crediting God for that miracle, their hearts were so hard, they credited the devil for the work that Jesus was doing. And as Jesus rightly says, that's ridiculous. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Why would the devil cast out the devil? 
So it, the idea is when you see the Holy Spirit do a thing, when you see God work and your heart is so hard that you see that thing and say, I refuse to believe, even then, upon seeing with your eyes a miracle, your heart is so hard, you're not going to repent. And you're going to blaspheme God. You're going to spit in God's face and turn away from God. Then yeah, you're not going to be forgiven. Not because you can't be, but because you will never seek it in the first place. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's longer than 30 seconds like I promised, but that's that. The very point, though, that I'm trying to make is if you can blaspheme God, then God is not a force, but a being. Things are done to him. And he's a being, not a force, because he does things. 2 Samuel 23, 2. What does David say? The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. The things that I said by inspiration, I said by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God moved through David so that what David said came to him from God, through God, to you or to his audience, whomever it was. God spoke through me and his word was on my tongue. A force cannot decide to speak through someone. Uh, an act of nature or um, uh, the byproduct of someone doing something cannot deliberately decide what to do. The decision has been made by the being. The force is what happens as a result. The Holy Spirit is not the result of an action. He's the doer of actions. In this case, inspired David and every other inspired person in your Bible. The Holy Spirit, as we've alluded to a couple times already, is not an it, but a he. And it's an easy one to fall into because so many people around us refer to him as an it. Do you have it? Do you have it? You got to get it. You need it. What do I need? You need the Holy Spirit. Has he got it? Has he got it? What does he got? What does he need? The Holy Spirit. He is not an it. And it's very offensive to call someone an it when he is a he. He is a person. He has thoughts. He has a will. He has decisions. He has things done to him and he has things that he does. He is not an it. He is not this um, unrelatable, unrecognizable, detached, non-living thing but rather he is God. And you would never call the Father an it, or at least you ought not. I would hope you would never. You would never call Jesus the Son an it. And he has been God before he came in the flesh, but he has never been an it. He's always been God, a he. The Father always been God, a he. The Holy Spirit has always been God, a he. Now notice that in the text as Jesus himself talks about the Holy Spirit. Look at John 4, uh, 16, verses 14 and 15. How be it when He, not it, the Spirit of truth has come, He, not it, will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of Himself, but He, what He has been received, what I have given Him to speak, He will speak to you. And He'll show you things to come. He's talking to His apostles. We'll come back to that too. So He is not this it, or if anyone would know better, Jesus would have called Him an it. If He would have recognized the Holy Spirit as just this thing that is sent, or just this power that is relieved, uh, re uh, re released and released, released and received. Oh, I'm going to come back to me stuttering too in the sermon in just a minute too, don't worry. If that's all he was, then yeah, you could call him an it. But he, God, Jesus, recognizes that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but is a person. A he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a God, but is God. And this is kind of a misconception but let's put it in the considerations to start with because it's hard to wrap our minds around the three the it's it's almost wrong to call it the three part nature of God because when you say that you imply that if you separate the parts it's not the whole but the Holy Spirit is holy God as much as the Father is holy God and I mean w-h-o-l-o-y as much as the Son is holy God they're all holy the holy God they are all God 
They are all singularly God. And I didn't make that weird grammar up either. Look at Genesis 1.26. This is God speaking within Himself. Let us, a plural word, make man in our image. A singular word. After our likeness. Singular. He didn't say, let us make man after our images. He didn't say, let us make man after our likenesses. He says, let us, God within Himself, make man after our one image. I don't understand that. But I know the implications and the ramifications of it is to make God a singular being. God is not three gods in one. God is one God in three. And it sounds pedantic, but that's a a distinction that needs to be understood. God is not three gods in one. Like they just, they all live in a hotel together or an apartment together and they, they come out one at a time depending on what needs to be done. No, they are one God with three ways that He manifests Himself. Three primary ways that he reveals himself. Or in the ways that he does what he does. A point we'll come back to in a second. Maybe you've seen this illustration. It's good. It's not perfect. None of them are. Because they all come from our uh, incomplete, flawed human minds, unable to fully wrap our heads around a being that is not of this world. But this one is pretty good. God is, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. But they are all God. They are three different ways in which God, that one God, reveals Himself or presents Himself or does the things that He does in this world. And there's nothing like that at all except for maybe the closest thing I can give you is us, humanity, people. Because people, as Genesis 1.26 says, are made in the image of God. A thing He did not say about ducks. I think he did not say about trees. Now, a duck has a body. A tree has a body. A tree does not have a mind. A duck has a mind. It's a small one. It's a little one. It can't do much with it. But a duck has a mind, and a duck has a body, but a duck doesn't have a soul. But you have a body, and you have a mind, and you have a soul. And your body is you, and no one else has your body. Your mind is you, and no one else has your mind. That's your mind, and your mind is not your body. And you have a soul given to you by God, and no one else has that soul. It's your soul. I can't see your soul. You can't see my mind. I promise it's there. But you can't see my mind. You can cut my head open. You can see my brain, but you cannot see my thoughts. No matter how dig you go in my weird fleshy thing in there with all the wrinkles, you cannot find my thoughts. God can see my thoughts. God can read my mind. But I have a mind. And you know I have a mind because I can express thoughts to you. But I do so in a physical way. I use my vocal cords or I use sign language or I use gestures and things to express my thoughts. But you can't see my thoughts. You can only see the expression of them. But you know I have them by the expression. I'm a me. I'm a body. I'm a me, Mario. I'm a body. I have a mind. And I have a soul. You can't see my soul either. And there's not even a way for me to express my soul. But it's there. And I know I have it because God has told me I have it. And I know it is saved because the Bible has told me that too. But I have it and it's mine. And God sees it. And God who can see my soul can identify my soul as me versus your soul that's you. He's got my identifying markers on it. Just like my physical body has an identifying marker. It's bald, fat, and yet still handsome. You can tell what it is. My soul has identifying markers that only this maker can identify. So you are body, mind, and soul. God is a Father, Son, Spirit. Those three parts of you are one. Your mind is not a part of your body. Your mind is wholly, entirely you. 
Your body is not a part of who you are. Your, body, your physical body is holy and entirely you. It's just incomplete without the rest. God is the Father, Son, and Spirit and cannot be separated. They are holy one. Not three gods in one. One God in three. And the closest you can get is humans, but even that's not perfect either. I've seen people use water as an illustration. Water has three different forms. It can be a vapor. It can be a liquid. It can be a solid. But you can turn water into a solid from liquid to solid. You can turn it from solid to vapor, but once it's vapor, it's not solid anymore. And the Father is the Father while the Spirit is still the Spirit and the Son is still the Son. Listen, there's nothing you're going to get that's perfect. I've seen apples be used. You have an apple and you have the apple skin, you have the apple flesh, you have the apple core, or the apple seed. Well, that's fine. That's great and stuff. But an apple seed is not, no one looks at an apple seed and says, look at that apple there. But you can look at the Holy Spirit and say, look at God. Or you can look at the sun and you can say, look at God. No one looks at apple skin and says, look at this apple. We say apple skin. We recognize it as an incomplete part. But God is God. You look at the Father and you say, there's God. You can look at the Holy Spirit and say, there is God. Now let's talk about his role in the Godhead. How does, he, how does that three-in-one being, how does he operate, that one-in-three being operate when he does what he does, how he does it when he does it? God, as we said, is not one-third of God. He's wholly God, completely. And he manifests himself, as God does, in different ways throughout history. And you can peruse your Bible to find big moments in time, big events when God did something directly. And in each one of those big events, you can see not just the work of the Father, and not just the work of the Son, or not just the work of the Holy Spirit, but you can see God and the whole of himself operating. So I have a little chart. That I want to give you. Now, maybe you've seen me do this before. I did it on a, the marker board in room one a couple summers ago, but you people forget my sermons after I preach them for a couple weeks. So I'm going to do this again, okay? Besides, now it's on PowerPoint, so it's totally different. So I have big events here the creation, the flood, salvation, and judgment. These are four major events that either have happened, one of which will still happen. And each one of these, your Bible talks about a role that God the Father plays, a role which God the Son plays, and a role which God the Holy Spirit plays. And the way that I'm organizing it, I, God didn't tell me this, this is just the way that I'm organizing it, all right, for my own understanding, is God the Father seems to operate within the Godhead as an architect. God is the big picture being. God is the one who says, we're going to do this thing, or this is what is going to be done, or I'm going to say this is what's going to be done, or let this be done. He is the one who speaks the thing to be done. The Son is the carrier-outer of God's plan. The Son is the one who executes that plan, who goes down and does the nitty-gritty, makes it happen. The Holy Spirit, as it seems to be, is an organizer, a beautifier, an arranger, a fill in the little details and make everything all neat and tidier. Now see that in these four big events. Let's start with the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's attribute that to the Father. Because it was God who said, let there be light. It was God who said, let there be stars. It is God who said, let there be a greater light and a lesser light. It is God who said, let there be plants and animals. It is God who said, let us make man in our image. But who did the actual creating? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the, in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Who was the Word? Well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, that being Jesus. So who is Jesus? He's the Word. Who's the Word? He's the Creator. I thought God was the Creator. Jesus is God. But He's the Son. God says, let there be light. God spoke, let there be light. And the Word which was spoken made the light. The Word is the Maker. The Father is the speaker of the Word. 
They work in tandem, but they have different roles. What about the Spirit? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. If you go all the way over to Job 26, verse 13, just one little random comment. It says that, this, that by God's Spirit, He garnished the heavens. That's the old King James. The word garnished doesn't mean like He sprinkled partially on the heavens. It means He beautified, He arranged, He organized. God said, let's make a universe. The Son made a universe. The Spirit brooded literally over the waters of the planets that were made, and he organized and beautified and arranged and put everything where exactly God wanted it to be. That's the role the Holy Spirit had, according to your Bible, in creation. Now what about the flood? It was God who said, I'm going to destroy the world. It is God who found grace in the eyes of Noah. It was the Father who made the decision, the architect of the great global flood. Well, what role did the Son play? If you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, as Peter is building you up to why you need to be baptized, he starts connecting the dots back to the flood. And as he's doing that, he starts talking about how when Noah was sent out to preach to the lost world the gospel of salvation, which was get in the boat and you don't have to die in the flood, as Noah went out to preach that message, Peter says that Noah preached with Jesus preaching through him, that Jesus went into the days of Noah and preached to those lost people. That Jesus was doing the preaching while Noah was doing the speaking. Because Jesus was preaching through Noah. There is the son in the flood account. He is preaching through Noah. How is he preaching through Noah? By the words which he told the Holy Spirit to tell Noah. Same context, 1 Peter 3. Because Peter says that by his spirit, he preached through spirits in prison when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. That, that Noah preached by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Peter makes it a point to inject two of the three aspects of the divine nature there in the flood account. So that you see God had this idea to flood the world, that the Son came in through the preaching of Noah to preach the gospel of the flood to the world, which is you don't have to die in it. And the Holy Spirit did the inspiring so Noah would know what to say, so that Noah would know what to say when it came time to preach that message to the people. All three aspects there of the flood. Now what about your salvation? To whom do you attribute your salvation? Do you credit the Father? You should. It was His plan. From the beginning, from before the foundation of the world, God had in mind your salvation, the fellowship of the mystery, that you could come to God through Jesus Christ. If it's through Jesus Christ and God has the plan, then this God is not Jesus Christ. This is the Father having this plan that through Him you could be saved. Ephesians 3, 9-11. through 11. What role does the Son play? He's the executor of God's plans. He executed God's plans by being executed. My little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, he has an advocate. Remember that word. I'll come back to it later. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the, what the old Bible says, propitiation, sin offering. He is the sin offering for the sins of the world. Not just for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What role does Jesus play in your salvation? He's the one who died to make it happen. Why did he die to make it happen? Well, you heard him say it there in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. Who had the plan? The Father. Who carried out the plan? The Son. That was 2,000 years ago. That was way more than 2,000 miles away. How do you know about it? What role did the Spirit play? You know about it because you read about it in the book which he inspired to tell you about it. Because there is no way with just oral transmission and with just people telling people about a thing that you could have the perfect record of exactly what happened and what you're supposed to do with it 
without the inspired Word of God, written down, passed down from person to person, read, studied, and then obeyed. This B-I-B-L-E. That's the role the Spirit plays. Let's open our Bibles now, because I've alluded and referenced enough Scripture. Let's read some Scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 21 and 22. And see for yourself what role the Spirit plays in your salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. 2 Corinthians 1, there it is. Now he which establishes you, sorry, now he which establishes us with you in Jesus Christ and has anointed us as God, who has also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In, in the way that Paul describes it here, what is your salvation? What does it entail? What does it include? It includes an earnest of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, given to your heart. Okay, now everybody shut your Bibles for a second. Let's all just close our eyes and think about how saved we are. Do you feel saved? No, you don't. You feel like you. Do you know you're saved? Yes, you do. How do you know you're saved? Because the Holy Spirit has told you you're saved. Now listen, close your eyes, listen. Do you hear him telling you you're saved? No, you don't, because that's not what it means. He's not whispering in your ear. And if you have a voice whispering to you, telling you things, that is not God. God is not speaking to you in a still, small voice. God is not whispering to you, telling you things. God has written to you to tell you things. You have the Holy Spirit within you, but the only way that you know that is because the Bible tells you so. Do not undercut this holy book. Do not discredit this holy word. Do not reject the importance of this inspired text by saying it doesn't matter because I've got the Spirit. You wouldn't even know who the Spirit is were it not for this book. Close your Bibles. Now somebody tell me something about God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit. Forget everything you ever heard about God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit. Somebody tell me something about Jesus. You don't know nothing. Now open your Bibles and tell me something. You've got a whole book in front of you. This is how you know who you are. This is how you know what you are. This is how you know what you're not anymore, which is condemned anymore, because God has told you, and he has given you the down payment of your salvation, that you can have the hope to keep going. How do you know you're saved? You're not saved yet. You're not out of this world, living in peace, out of this temptations anymore. You're no, you don't have that kind of salvation yet. You have a salvation in earnest promise, in earnest expectation. How do you know that? You're not there yet. How do you know you have it? You've been told it. You either trust it or you don't. That's the role the Spirit plays in your salvation. There's more. We'll come to that in a minute. But that's just one aspect. Finally, the judgment, which is yet to come, but still your Bible talks about it. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 36? Open your Bibles there. Look at it yourself. Listen to what the Lord says about the Father. When is the, when is the second coming of Christ going to happen on the subject of people who say false doctrine? You flip through your cable channels, if anybody still has cable, long enough, you'll stumble upon the ridiculous religious channels and you'll find people talking about how the signs are all pointing to Jesus coming soon. All the signs are pointing to Jesus coming soon. They don't know nothing. There's no signs. There's no signs. There's no signs. This is not even on. There's no signs. There's no signs to look for. God is not sending you beacons in the sky to say you better repent tonight because tomorrow it's coming. Because then what would be the point? That's not how it works. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24? Of that day and hour knows no one but my Father which is in heaven. He's the organizer. He's the arranger. He's the architect of your judgment, this world's judgment. When he says go time, it's go time. And he's not giving you signs. You, everything you need has already been provided for you. This, these are your signs. And it's not pointing you to a specific day or hour because that's reserved for the Father. What role does the Son play in the judgment? He's the judge. 
He's the one coming, bringing that judgment. God the Father knows when it is. God the Son is bringing it to you. He's bringing it down. 2 Thessalonians, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what role does the Spirit play in judgment? Open your Bibles to John 16. And listen to the Lord. I know I told you to do that before and I didn't read it. This time we're going to read it. Look at John chapter 16. And listen to what Jesus says about the role the Spirit plays in judgment. Verses 8 through 11. John 16, 8, when he, that's the Holy Spirit in the context, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He'll reprove about sin because they don't believe on me. They'll reprove, he'll reprove about righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. He'll reprove about judgment because the prince of the world is judged. From the devil on down, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in judgment? The Father architects the idea. The Son brings the idea. The Spirit lets you know about the idea. He's the one doing the reproving. He's the one saying you ought not do that because judgment is coming. He's the one who says you ought do this because judgment is coming. How is he telling me what to do and not do? This tells me what to do and not do. He's the one who inspired it. It ruffles every feather I have left, which is not on my head, but in proverbially, every feather I have left when I hear gospel preachers discredit the power of this book. And they whittle down and water down the importance of this book. And they try to esteem some ethereal, mystical mysticism onto the Holy Spirit, which he never asked for. And they say, you don't need the Bible because you've got the Holy Spirit. You don't need the Bible because the Holy Spirit will tell you this. And we'll get to that one. And the Holy oh, Spirit will, will do this for you. And you don't need to worry about reading the Bible because you've got the Holy Spirit. That's why he wrote the Bible. This was not just penned by some monks in a cave. This is not just written by some people who are on shrooms, which is things people say about Moses and other writers. This was inspired text. This was inspired text from God himself, in particular, the Holy Spirit. You know what to do or not do because judgment is coming because the Holy Spirit has told you so. Written down, conveniently put in red letters for you to see who said what. Now that's the role of the Spirit in the Godhead. Now let's get some common misconceptions before we close with how he works today. Common misconceptions. Number one, the Holy Spirit is fire. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a dove. Number three, the Holy Spirit is a tongue. Come back to that one. Number four, the Holy Spirit talks for us. And last, the Holy Spirit makes me or makes us do this or do that. Let's take these in turn. First of all, is the Holy Spirit fire? You get that one a lot. Our Pentecostal friends will use this one a lot. They'll talk about the baptism into fire. I want to be baptized in that fire. I want that ba fiery baptism. Let me tell you, based on the context of John, who is the one speaking in Matthew 3, you absolutely do not want the baptism of fire. There are two audiences to John the Baptist's sermon here in Matthew 3. One audience is, uh, consists of uh, honest-hearted, believing Judeans who are seeking the Messiah to come. And they've heard the preaching of John. They've come to be baptized in the Jordan River by John to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah. The other audience is a bunch of hard-hearted, angry, bitter Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders who either they're coming or they're sending scouts out to see what John is saying, who don't believe in the Messiah to come, who don't think things are going to change, who don't want things to change, because if they upend the status quo, that upends them and their authority. And they have rejected the preaching of John. They've rejected the preaching of the Messiah to come. Well, they're going to be condemned because their hearts are hard. This group over here, they're going to be saved because their hearts are softened. And to those two different audiences, John promises two different things coming by way of the Messiah. One is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit immersing them. Another is baptism of fire. What do you think you get dipped in in a baptism of fire? You don't want it. 
That's damnation. That's condemnation. Stop begging for God to baptize you in fire, as our friends sometimes say. That's not what you want. The other, though, if you're faithful and righteous, well, that's a, that's a whole different can of worms. But you don't want the baptism of fire. But regardless, not even in the text does John say fire. He says in fire. Or he says with fire. Nowhere in the text is the Holy Spirit called fire. But there is something that he will do with fire. And that is condemn the disobedient. Reject the forsaking ones. Turn away from the um, uh, hard-hearted ones with a baptism. With fire. Is the Holy Spirit a dove? Same basic context. Jesus has come to John to be baptized of him. John baptizes him, and when he does, the heavens open, and the Spirit of God descends. Now, what does your text say? Like a dove. Not he is a dove, but he descends like a dove. In other words, he being God, this manifestation of God himself manifests in a form that can only be described as something dove-like. That's the best that the writer Matthew could put it. The best way that we could understand it. It had this shape, this image. It kind of glowed. And so it has this kind of white visage. Like how, like how angels are seen as depicted in white robes that are glowing. That's that heavenly aura. Well, here is this heavenly aura of this manifestation of the Spirit coming to, my Bible says, light on Jesus, rest on Jesus. The whole spectacle looked like this dove-like being resting on Jesus at his baptism. And the voice of the Father comes, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The best way you could describe it is it is like, it being the manifestation, is like a dove. He's not a dove, but sometimes he can present himself in a way that's the best way we could put it. Is he a flaming tongue? Yes, I've heard this. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they of the apostles were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. And there said upon each of the apostles, what my Bible says, cloven tongues like as a fire. If you've ever seen a serpent tongue, that's a cloven tongue. It's a split tongue. So again, like with the dove thing, here's this thing that the only way the writer Luke could describe it is it looked like a flame was on their heads. This bright light was shining from their heads and it was split like a cloven tongue. It doesn't mean... Ah, a tongue that is on fire coming out of their heads. That's a gnarly, weird picture that you'd be surprised how many commentaries in Acts 2 will paint. That is not accurate. That's not what is being written. The best comparison I can give you is Exodus 34.30. In Exodus 34.30, Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, having been closer to God in the physical form than anybody had ever been and to live to tell the tale. And as he comes down and the people behold him, his face is glowing. Now my Bible says his face shone. The word in the Hebrew is horns. Horns of light were coming out of his head. If you've seen certain statues, I think Michelangelo did one. I don't remember who it was. It might have been Raphael. One of the Ninja Turtles did a statue of Moses, and he has horns. And a lot of people see that statue, and they freak out. They're like, why did they put devil horns on Moses? They're not devil horns. They're radiant beams of light coming out of Moses' head, because that's what the Hebrew text says, that after conversing with God, the light of God was just soaked up in his pores and just bursting out into these huge beams of light, these split lights. Similarly, in Acts 2, when the apostles were gathered there and the power of the Holy Spirit descended on them, as they began to speak with other tongues, the people knew this is a power coming from God because they shined, they shone with light coming from God. It is not a flaming tongue. That's not what it means. It looked like a snake's tongue or it looked like a, a, a cow. Cows have split. Thank you. I grew up on a farm. You think I know that. I don't know if you knew that, but I grew up on a farm. 
Cow? Camel? A camel! Thank you. I did not grow up in the desert. It, it, it would look like something like that. Whatever body part you want to have that splits like that. All right? That's the idea. It doesn't call him a tongue, so let's not call him that either. Now, someone else says, the Holy Spirit talks for me. I have had gospel preachers who ought to know better because they're supposed to know this book, but I have had gospel preachers say to me, I don't need to worry about preparing my sermons because I know the Holy Spirit's going to tell me what to say. I haven't heard them preach. I'm pretty sure their sermons are terrible because you must prepare. I cannot get up on that stage. If you've ever done the work, you know how untrue that is. You cannot get up there unprepared. If you are ever up there unprepared, the whole world will know because they will see your deer-in-the-headlights look. They will hear all your stuttering and stammering, and they will know that guy is not ready for that stage. And yet that misconception remains where people think the preacher or whoever is delivering the message has God beaming the words into them. Listen, once upon a time, God did beam words into people so that when they rose to speak in court against kings or in the, in the presence of many hostile audiences, that God spoke through them. We already had that reference from David, David in 2 Samuel 23. God moved through me. His word was on my tongue. Well, yeah, that's true for David. It ain't true for Matthew. When Frank gets up here and he preaches, God's not moving. You preach many sermons, Frank. Has God ever said, Frank, stop talking. Here's what I want you to say. No. If anybody has ever spoken, you know you've spoken because you put in the prep work, you studied the material, you learned it well enough, you looked at the texts that were relevant, and you presented to the audience. The very fact that I get up here and I stutter and stammer like an idiot as often as I do, and I sometimes my, my spittle gets caught in the back of my throat and I go like that. I know you've all heard it. No one's told me, but I know you hear it. I do that sometimes. All those little mistakes that I make, all those errors that I have, the times when I will quote a, quote a verse and get it completely wrong, or I'll quote it perfectly and I'll get the reference completely wrong. I do all those things. It's proof positive that God is not literally moving through my body. His word is not on my tongue. His word is in this book. And I've got to read it and study it and present it to you. But that misconception remains. I had a preacher say to me about 10 years ago, ask me, do you still get nervous when you preach? And I honestly... Honestly, he said, yeah, I still get nervous sometimes. And he said, why? Doesn't the Holy Spirit, you know, you know he's just going to tell you what to say. I don't know what spirit is talking to him, but it's not the Holy Spirit. But that person will use this verse, and he will abuse it in the process. So look at what the text says, John 14, 26. John 14, 26. But the Comforter who is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I've said to you. Doesn't that say the Holy Spirit is telling you? Doesn't that say the Holy Spirit is causing you to remember? Who is he talking to? Go, back, go, go over to 16.23. Yeah, no, 16.13, sorry. Look at 16, verse 13. Jesus still speaking. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself, but whatever he hears, that will he speak, and he will show you things to come. Doesn't that sound like, isn't he saying the Holy Spirit is guiding people into truth, telling them what is so, leading them into what to say? Absolutely, that's what Jesus is saying. But to whom is Jesus speaking? Go back to John 14 and look at the verse just before where we read. John 14, 25. In fact, go back just a couple of verses before that and see it even more clearly. Look at John 14, 22. Look at John 14, 22 and listen to Judas Iscariot. Ask a question. Judas says to him, Oh, sorry, not Iscariot, the other Judas, says to him, Lord, see, Holy Spirit, not moving through me. Judas, not Iscariot, says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not to the world? And Jesus says, if, what does yours say? A man. 
if just somebody, that's a general statement that's applicable to anybody. If a man loves me and he keeps my word and my father will love them and, we will, and we'll come into him and make our abode with him. That's a general statement. Then he says, these things, generally about everything we've been talking about overall, these things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. Not some guy, not anybody, not just any man, but these things have I said to you. To whom is he speaking? Where is he talking? When is this? John 14. This is the upper room right after the Last Supper, just before his prayer and his passion begins. He's talking to his disciples one last time. He's just got through telling them, I'm going to go away and you can't follow me. And Peter, you're about to deny me three times. That's the end of John 13. And then he sees their reaction to that, and thus he says, let not your heart be troubled. John 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's going to be okay. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back, etc. He's talking to his apostles. There's a lot in this text that's applicable to us, but some of it being applicable does not mean you can just grab whatever text in this uh, context you want and make it about you. He's not talking to you here. He's talking to his apostles to whom he's going to give specific instructions and specific power to go preach his message to start his kingdom, to start the spreading of it throughout the world. He's about to go away, John 13. He's about to die and leave them. But as he says in this text, I will not leave you alone. I will send you another who is like me, but not exactly like me. Another comforter who is the Holy Spirit. The comforter, that being the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he, that comforter, will guide you apostles into all truth so that you guys will know what to say when you go preach the gospel and they arrest you for it. As they're about, about there it is, I did it again. As they're about to arrest me. So they're about to arrest me and put me before kings and before governors and I have to speak and defend what I'm doing. Well, they're going to do the same to you because the servant's not greater than the master. It's all these things tied together. He's telling his 12, 11 now, he's telling his ones, you're going to go off and preach, but the spirit that I'm going to send to you will tell you what to say. And that's that age, that era of time in which those miracles of the spirit were done. Nowadays, what they said is here. So now I can stand before kings and governors and preach because I know what to say, because I've read the book that he inspired. Finally, someone says, the Spirit makes me do this. I'm being led to do this. I'm being guided. Listen, there's a providential guidance. There's a providential leading. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not a providential, you know, cane-hooking, dragging. That's not how it works. You can't say, I'm here because God told me to come here. Unless you got it from here... God's not whispering in your ear telling you to do something, and certainly God is not making you do something because God respects your free will that he gave you. But still people misunderstand and abuse. Look at Galatians 5 and see specifically what Paul says and how Paul describes what it is to live like a Christian. The fruit of the Spirit, come back to that phrase, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit that we bear. And those who live in Christ, walk after the Spirit. So here is the guidance of the Spirit, and I follow the guidance of the Spirit. Here is the guidance of the Spirit. When I follow the guidance of the Spirit, I will bear the fruit of the Spirit. He's not making me do something. I am choosing to follow Him through the inspired record that He has given me to know what is right and what is wrong. And when I do what is right, I, being this tree that God has planted and watered and caused to bear fruit, will bear a holy fruit. I can choose not to follow the Spirit. And I can follow the devil and I will bear rotten fruit, sour grapes. Or I can follow God, being born of the Spirit, John 3, and bear the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The Spirit doesn't make you do things. You choose to walk after Him, to walk in His uh, guidance. Now, we come to the matters of the present. I'm almost done. 
What is the Holy Spirit doing for me today? The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian. It's as a, a, an antitype. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. There's types and antitypes in your Bible. A type is this thing of the Old Testament that was done a certain way because God was looking ahead to how He would do it in a better way in the New Testament. A type is a shadow. The antitype is the thing that casts the shadow. The shadow is the light of the sun that shines on this thing, and so you can see the shadow. You can kind of get an idea of what it is, but it looks different than what it actually is. The, the, the thing which casts the shadow has three dimensionality, but the shadow is just the shadow. It's just this visage of the thing. The Old Testament is filled with shadows. Moses is a shadow of Christ. He's not Christ, but he's a lawgiver. He's a redeemer. He's a deliverer. He's a leader of the people. He's a prophet. In all those ways, Jesus is, but more. Shadow, fulfilling the shadow. Type, the antitype. The Holy Spirit's um, uh, indwelling of you is an antitype of the type. It's the fulfillment of the shadow of back in the day when they had a tent called the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And when the people were in fellowship with God, God let them know they were in fellowship with Him because He beamed a light from heaven down to the Ark of the Covenant. They saw God's presence was in the tent, and so they knew if God's in the tent, we have fellowship with God. Later, they built the permanent building. They built the temple. When God's light came into the temple, they knew God was there. When Ezekiel writes at the beginning of his book that God loads up in his chariot and drives away from the temple, that's a sign that God's about to abandon the temple to be raided and sacked and burned down by the Babylonians. God's presence in the temple, a sign of fellowship. You are now the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 And God's Holy Spirit dwells within you as His Spirit dwelled in that temple back then. You have God within you as a temple. You therefore must live faithfully and righteously or the fellowship you have with God will be undone. So you are the temple today. You don't have to trek up a hill to Jerusalem three, four, five, seven times a year to have fellowship with God. You have fellowship with God. Anywhere you go, anywhere with Jesus, you can safely go. Why? Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit given upon your moment of salvation. What's something else the Holy Spirit does to you? The Holy Spirit is whom you walk after and not after the flesh. Look at Romans 8.1 because I forgot how it starts or I would have just quoted it. Because I'm not guided by the Spirit directly. Romans 8.1 Oh yeah, there is therefore now no condemnation. You have all of Romans 7 with Paul talking about how uh, we have this law that we can't keep and we try to do good and we can't do good. It's just terrible. And that's the law of Moses that we, he was given and no matter how good the people were, none of them were perfectly in, in keeping it. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. You don't need this law to keep anymore, the old law of Moses, because now you've been saved from that keeping of that law. Now your sins are washed away. You don't need that kind of overly analytical neurotic regulation. Now you have salvation. Now you walk not after the flesh, doing whatever you want, because you couldn't keep the law anyway, so you just reverted to the mean. But now you walk after the Spirit. How do you know what to do? How do you know what faithfulness looks like? You walk after the Spirit. This is the new law of Jesus Christ given to you to walk after. The Spirit, look at verse 16 of Romans 8. And this is almost a quote on the screen. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Are you a child of God? Are you a Christian? Is God your Holy Father? I don't mean your Maker. I mean, is He your Father? Is God your Abba Father to whom you can pray and make any utterance to? And He'll listen to you. Is He that? Are you His child? How do you know? Breakfast tournament. Where are you at? There you are. Point to your daddy. Where's your daddy? There's your daddy. Right there. There's his daddy. Who's some? Joshua. Joshua Martin. Where are you at? Hi. Point to your daddy. Point to your daddy. Who's your daddy? Right here. You can find your daddy. 
You can point out your daddy. You know your daddy. How do you know God is your father? I don't want to disrespect him and call him your daddy, but how do you know God is your father? How do you know? I'm saved, that's how I know. How do you know you're saved? Well, the Bible tells me so. You better believe it. And if the Bible didn't tell you, how could you ever know? The Spirit bears witness to tell you that you are the Son of God. You know within your spirit, within you, your essence, from beginning to end, from inside out, from spirit, mind to body, you know you are the child of God because the Spirit has told you so. How do you know Jesus loves you? The Bible tells you so. How do you know you love Jesus? Jesus loves you. This you know. How do you know? The Bible tells you so. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit reveals His will to us through the inspired Word. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 9-13, through 13, please. I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor either entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. But God has revealed them to us. That's Paul talking on behalf of the apostles in this context. By His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what does a man know of the things of a man except for the spirit of man that is in him? Who knows your innermost thoughts but you? All right? Even so, the things of God knows no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, we have been given the message we've been given. We have preached the message we've preached because the Holy Spirit has provided it for us. How do you know, not just that you're children of God, how do you know how to be faithful to God? How do you know what the will of God is? The Spirit has revealed the will of God. To whom? To you. Through what? Through this. This is His book. This is His... It's going it, to... This is going to sound bad. This is His legacy. That sounds bad because it sounds like he has nothing left. He is, he's God. That's plenty. But this, this is his. He doesn't speak of himself, but he writes everything you need to know about God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. That's a tremendous accomplishment. And it angers me with righteous indignation when preachers disregard this for a mystical version of what they call the Holy Spirit. No, you, are, you know the will of God by the Spirit which has written it for you. The Holy Spirit, here's something else he does for you, reconciles your prayer to the unknown will of God. You're at the bedside of a loved one. They're very, very sick. They're near death. They're not dead yet. They're near death. They have a disease which has no cure. You want to pray for them. As you should, what do you pray? Do you pray, God, they're suffering. Let them go. They're a faithful Christian. Take them home. You could pray that prayer. You'll end it with, thy will be done. Or do you pray, God, let them hang on because maybe there'll be a cure and they can have 5, 10, 20, 30 more years. What do you pray? You pray that prayer, you're going to end it with thy will be done. Those are two very opposite things. They can't both be his will. What's it going to be? You're going to utter the prayer. Choose. Flip a coin. Choose that they live. Okay, I'm going to pray that God asked them to live. That's not the will of God. I'm just let's assume for the illustration. That's not the will of God. So now you've prayed something that's against the will of God. Shame on you. No, not shame on you. You don't know the will of God. How can you know the will of God? You can't. But yet you still pray, thy will be done. You don't know his will. But you say thy will be done, and in the midst of saying that, you still say, but here's what I want. The Spirit takes that prayer and rejiggers it. There's a word you didn't think I'd ever say. So that it could be received by the ears of the Father, whose will you don't know. Look at Romans 8.26 and see that exact thing said in the text. Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps our, my Bible says, infirmities, our weaknesses. What weaknesses? 
when we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. What are the groanings which cannot be uttered? The, the, the language that is uttered between the Spirit and the Father. That's not for me to be privy to. That's between God. That's, that is a small little glimpse, a little peek behind the curtain of the inner mechanics of the divine nature. Father, Son, and Spirit, the three working together. You get a little hint of that. I offer prayer to God, and it's not in God's will, but that's okay. I'm not condemned for it because the Spirit intercedes. He grabs in that, that prayer, and he delivers it to the Father, and he does what he does. He beautifies it. He arranges it. He organizes it. He sends it to the Father so that it can be received by him. It's not his will, but that's okay because I don't know it. I'm still encouraged to pray for it. Now, to end the sermon, how does the Holy Spirit work today? He works just fine. Thank you for asking. That's the answer. And anytime someone says that and they're looking for an argument, just say that and walk away. How does the Holy Spirit work today? He works perfectly. Thank you for asking. He does what he does. And it's not for me to say he should do it differently. He does what he does because he is God. And his prerogative is not mine. Neither is his will my own. Neither is his thoughts my thoughts or his ways my ways. And that, this sermon is over. We didn't cover, we didn't scratch even this, the surface level of everything your Bible says about the Holy Spirit. But you can know this, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit recorded everything you need to know about God, an inspired record for you to know what to do to be faithful to God. And for that, we should be thankful. As much as we should be thankful to the Father for making us and the Son for dying for us, we should be thankful to the Holy Spirit for telling us that who, who made us and telling us who died for us. If you're here this evening, you're not a Christian, you have been told who made you, God. You've been told who died for you, Jesus. Now obey the will of God, recorded for you by the Spirit's word, and become a Christian. And if you're not a faithful one, be restored, as the Spirit's word tells you to do so, to be right with him again. If we can help you somehow, let us know how right now. Please come as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash matthew-martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.